We're here, Romans chapter 9, uh, as we've taken that, that five-week break here to look at some hard questions. But I want to ask you this. Um, are you here for God this morning, right? Or is God here for you, right? Are you here to surrender your life to God, or is God here for you? We're in Romans chapter 9, and um, here's what the assumption is with the Apostle Paul. We aren't kind of sinful, we are totally sinful. God and his sovereignty is over all things. That's the assumption. You were not born into this world as a good person or as a neutral person. You were born into this world as a bad person. That every inclination of your heart was towards evil, as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9. And I know that sounds depressing, but that's the truth. I mean, we have to be somber. We're Presbyterian. Okay, that's funny. Very, very funny. But it is. If you have a big doctrine of sin, and you know that you're born into your sin nature, you need a big Jesus. In fact, and and you need a bigger God. And so we come to Romans chapter 9, and Paul has this theology of a huge God. And he's a Jew. And... He's looking at Rome, and he's looking at the Jews in Rome, and he's thinking, oh my goodness, I don't, I can't believe it. We're the chosen people, and you know what? They still don't get it. You don't even get how sinful you are, Pharisees. You think you're good. You're trying to obey the law, and you can't. And so Paul in Romans chapter 9 is saying, look, I need to, I need to flip something on you. And for those of you um, that haven't come very often, I'm going to need you to put on your thinking caps because this is a deeper chapter. In fact, I feel like in all of Scripture, this is one of the deepest chapters. And it's going to be tough, and I hope, hopefully it'll be very encouraging. But, it, but it's tough to, to um, swallow and to digest some of the concepts in this chapter. This is Romans chapter 9, verse 1. This is Paul and his heart for his people, the Jews... I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. That's the Hebrews, the Jews. Those of my own race, the people of Israel. Keep going. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Do you not remember in Exodus, we were called the firstborn of God. That's what we were. You guys don't get it. There's the divine glory. You don't understand, Israel, we received what? In the Ark of the Covenant, there was the Shekinah glory. We had the divine glory, and you still don't really believe. The covenants, what does that mean? Abraham, Moses, right? Or actually, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, All of the covenants pointed towards Christ. The receiving of the law. You receive the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws on Mount Sinai. The temple. David and Solomon built the temple. uh, The temple worship. And then the promises. All the anticipations. For unto us a child will be born. Right? A son will be given. The virgin will be with child. Isaiah 7, 14. I gave all those promises 
theirs are the patriarchs, those men, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and from them is traced the human history of the Messiah, who is God over all. Your God is huge. Read the first chapter of Luke, please. Read the first chapter of Matthew. And I know they're genealogies and you might get born, but or you might get bored, but if you read all of them, you'll understand how God works through these generations. And, and Paul is saying, Do you not understand how big God is? You you maybe you don't get it. And in all of this, what do you feel from Paul? He's anguished. He's like, gum it. My people still don't get it. I want them to know that all of the 39 books of the Old Testament point towards Jesus, but they will not believe that he is the Messiah. They won't do that. And it's so frustrating that God um, gave us this gift through Jesus. And so what do we do with that? What do we do? I mean, I think, I pray that our heartbeat here at Westtown, is that our next door neighbors, right? That your heart breaks for them. That your heart breaks for them. And, and you don't think, I'm better than them as you, as you come to church on Sunday and you see that they're still there. And you think, well, they're not as good as me. No, Paul is saying, you know what? <laughs> you don't understand. As you go to the temple and you still think you've got something to bring to God, here's what he says. You have nothing to bring to God. God has everything to bring to you. And I anguish that my own people, I am the Jew of Jews. Remember, Paul studied at Harvard, the Jewish Harvard under Gamaliel, the greatest Jewish professor. That's who, that's who Paul studied under. And he realized it didn't mean anything if he didn't believe that Jesus was the climax of what? All these promises and all these covenants. It meant nothing. You could memorize the whole Old Testament, but it didn't mean anything if you didn't know who Jesus was. But then he gives us this deep theology, starting in verse 6. He says this. It's not as though God's word has failed, church. Remember that. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What in the world does that mean? Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Do you not realize, Westtown Church, it's not the church people. If you go to church, you are not guaranteed salvation. If you are Israel and you go to temple, you are not truly Israel. Physical descent is of one thing. If you were born into a Christian family, that's, that's good, of course. But does that make you a Christian? If you are born into the church and you go to church, no. It has nothing to do with it. What Paul, what Paul is trying to say is, look, remember Sarah? She had a son, and she was forcing it. She told Abraham, sleep with my maidservant, Hagar, and we're going to have a son. We will make this happen. And who do they have? Ishmael. God said, no. That's of fleshly um, manipulation. You trust in me. I know you're 90-something, Sarah. I know you're 100, Abraham. Do you trust me? You will still have a kid. 
And what do we know happened? That Ishmael had a brother, a half-brother, and his name was Isaac. And through the line of Isaac came Jesus. But here's what we know. That through the line of Ishmael, no. That wasn't true Israel. It was, it was as if man was trying to take control. And God says, do you trust me? Because I control all things. You don't control anything. And that's what this passage is about. And it's tough. Because if you believe that you are truly sinful and that your heart is deceitful, everybody's heart is deceitful, that you are no better than the worst sinner that's ever been known to man, that we are as sinful as our neighbor, that all that matters is our faith in the anticipation, what, of the Old Testament in being Jesus. And so not all church people, what? Not all church people are God's people. Why? You can go to church all your life, and God's going to look at you at Judgment Day, and he's going to say, you know what he's going to say to you? I never knew you. Who, what are you doing? You're coming up to the gates of heaven thinking you deserve heaven, and God's going to look at you or at me. If you can't see my heart, even as a pastor, he says, look, there are plenty pastors that have whitewashed hearts, right? They are fakes. They are, they are completely fraudulent. And what he's saying is not all Israel is true Israel. Because what matters is what? Not circumcision of, of your flesh, but circumcision of your heart. Westtown Church, is your heart circumcised? In other words, is your heart completely undone by what Jesus and his life and death and resurrection has done for you? Because unless that's true, you know what? You're a church person. And God will look at me if I'm just a church person. And you don't know that, and I don't know that for you. You can say all the things, and you can do all the right things, right? But unless your heart is changed, that is the sign that you are true. Now, some people say, you know what? What about when people, you know, Ishmael, as, as the son of, of Sarah, and I, or uh, as, the, as, the, as the son of, uh, of Abraham, and Isaac as the son of Abraham, you know, they, you know, Abraham slept with Hagar, and that was a sin. But when Abraham slept with Sarah, Isaac was, you know, that was natural, that was right. But then he goes on to say, no, no, I'm going to go a step farther. Not only that, let's go to the next generation. But Rebekah's children, who were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. And who do we know? Who do we know? They were twins, right? Jacob and Esau. Says this, yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, before they were born, before they had done anything, before anything had happened, what? In order that God's purpose in election, in other words, in his election, that it might stand, not by works, not by anything that Jacob did better than Esau, right? But by him who calls, she was told, here's the way God had it planned in his sovereignty. The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now you could read that wrong, in a wrong way. What God means by that is this. I had grace upon Jacob. And I, you know, hate in, in, in this, if you, took it, if you took the Hebrew word, hate is, is basically this. Is allowing the sinfulness of man to happen. Because God limits sin. God limits sin right now. 
But in, in a special way, God said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to allow Esau to be what he is, to be a sinful man. And what do we know came from Esau? Read the book of Numbers. Esau means red hair. He formed the Edomites, the red-haired people. Who came in the line of Edom? Herod. Jacob. What do we know? In Genesis 32, his name was changed to Israel. Who was the perfect Israel? Jesus. What do we know in the first few chapters of the Gospels? Is that it was, Jake, it was Jesus versus Herod, the red-haired, the Esau, right? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick Jesus. And it's Jesus I loved, and it's Herod that I allowed, what? His sinfulness to take over. And to him, and, and, and Herod to become basically this maniacal man. Jacob, I didn't reject, and I loved, and I gave grace. But Esau, what did I give? I gave Esau, what? Justice. Verse 14, this is tough, I know. Stay with me here. Well, what, what then shall we say? Paul is predicting your response to that. Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Did you read the story of the guy who gave the commencement speech at Morehouse College? You know what he said? He said, and here's my final statement, essentially. I, all the seniors that are graduating, your college debt, gone. I am paying everybody's college debt off. Right? So imagine if that was on a Friday, and let's, let's imagine you were you know, a beautiful, glorious Florida State Seminole grad on Saturday, baby, right? And you just read that story, right? This dude paid off all the seniors' debt. Would your assumption be, you know what? I should have all my debt paid off. I should. Are you kidding? If that person got their debt paid off, then I should sure as heck get my debt paid off. But here, here's what we know. Is that while, but four chapters earlier, while we were yet sinners, everybody, if God is just, and is justice not a beautiful thing? When justice comes about in your home, in your city, in your nation, is justice not a beautiful thing? It is. It's a good thing. The problem is, is that if God gave justice to all of us, what happens? What happens is this. Go to the next slide. That all of us receive God's wrath. If God is fair, you are sinful and I'm sinful. And there's nothing I can do, right? There's nothing I can do to deserve eternal life with him. And so if God is just a fair judge, and he, remember, he's the judge. You're not the judge of him. He's the judge of you. That's what Roman nine, Romans 9 is, is, and Paul is trying to make sure we understand. I know that this is a hard like, cup of truth, but he's, Paul is trying to say, hey, look, pal, remember, you, you're not the center of the world. I know you think during the week that I'm the center of the world. You're not. You were made for God. Because God's the center of the universe. God is the point. You're not the point. Frank, you're not the point. West Town's not the point. My family's not the point. Why is it that every day I'm thinking I'm the point? 
My, my comfort or my security is the point. And what Paul is saying, remember this church. Remember this Rome, church at Rome. If God is fair, if God is right, then you know what? Everybody goes to hell. Everybody goes to Hades. Gehana, as Jesus says. The lake of what? Of burning sulfur. It's this horrible description that I know you don't like hearing about on a Sunday morning, but it's the truth. And when you understand that God, this, God says this, I'm going to give mercy on whom I will give mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And, and what you know inside your heart is that God has had compassion on you. Here's what our reaction should be. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. I don't deserve anything. No one deserves any of this. If God is just, that is a great thing. And if God just gives me justice, what everybody, what? Everybody receives his wrath. But that God would give grace to anybody. It's unbelievable. And so when you understand that God chose you, and God chose Jacob, and didn't choose Esau, and he chose you, when there's nothing good about you, as opposed to the next guy who he didn't choose, here's what your response can be. Utter humility. Utter Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his, thing, into his presence with thanksgiving, right? And into his courts with praise. Or, here's what our response could be. Are you kidding me? Why didn't you pick that person? Why didn't you pick them? That's not fair, God. No, 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 no. What Paul is saying, church in Rome, remember, if God gives us justice, if God is a fair God, we all, what, deserve his wrath. Therefore, verse 16, it doesn't. Therefore, depend on human desire, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, this is to Pharaoh during the time of the plagues, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That is a huge God. That is God in control of your salvation. And you know if God has worked inside of you. You know if God has called you from this life of depravity into a life of holiness because of what he's done through Jesus. And when you understand that you have been elect and that he, you could have been Esau instead of Jacob, that should what? Utterly right, cut us to our very core. Because that is ridiculous grace. And that God is standing over us. And we never stand over him. Because here's what was happening. Some of the people in the church were beginning to feel like, you know what? I don't like the way God deals with me. I don't like the power that God has. And Paul is saying, look, pal. I need to put you in your place. I need to write this chapter and make you feel small, not to hurt you or condemn you or make you feel worse than you should feel, but to put you in a disciplined place because some of us, 
We walk into this room and we think, okay, God, you owe me. Because I've been good this week. I've come to church this week. Or I've given you money. Or God doesn't owe us a thing. God doesn't owe me one thing. The very breath that I took this morning when I woke up is a gift of God. And if you think, if I think for one minute that I deserve anything, man, I tell you what, I've become an arrogant jerk. I've become uh, a conceited megalomaniac. I've become an out-of-control narcissist. If we think, literally, we deserve our breath, we don't. And that God gives us the moments that he gives us are gorgeous. And when we lose sight of that, when we lose sight of who God is, I tell you what, we get into trouble. And so Paul says, yeah, I bet you, here's what some of you might say even more. One of you will still say to me, let's go to that, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? And the answer is, what are you doing? Have you ever been to um, a potter? Have you ever made a clay pot? Right? Have you ever been the one you know, who's worked with the lump of clay? You have been the potter, right? And there's a lump of clay, and you can do whatever you want with that. The, the, the clay can't speak to you and say, no, don't do, don't do that with me. You can't do that with me. I mean, anybody ever here had any lump of clay speak to them? That's interesting. Okay, good, good. Um, I'd be very weird if you did. Um, then why does God still blame us for who's able to resist his will? But and then his response is this. But who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes? The elect those that he's chosen, and some for common use. You know, when I really began to read more and more about this passage this week, I, I clicked on it, I did a little Google search, and you know what? There's a lot of pastors, when they preach through Romans, that skip this chapter. They, don't, they, they literally skip chapter 9 with their churches. They're like, 1 through 8 is great. Yeah, uh, neither death nor life, right, nor principalities or anything. Who can separate us from the love of God, famine, persecution, danger, or sword? Knowing all these things, we are conquerors or more. The end of Romans chapter 8. And all of a sudden we come to this one. And it's this massive like, reality of how big God is. And so what pastors do is they say, my church can't handle this. My, can't, my church can't handle this part of the word of God. So let's just not even read it. Let's not even preach it to them. Because they'll freak out. But here's the, here's the beauty of it is it gives God everything. It gives him complete control of your life. And he says, I can use Israel to show my grace because there is nothing better. Moses had nothing better in his heart than Pharaoh did. What's the difference between Moses and Pharaoh? Nothing. Moses, what do we find out about Moses? He's a murderer. Pharaoh was a murderer. We know that. Those were two equally depraved dudes. And he's saying, look, I have the right. I am in control. And when you think about this, should it make you fearful? Yes. Should it make you question and look into, look, has God done his work in my heart? Am I here for God? Or do I really feel like on Sundays, 
God is here for me. You are here for him. And if you flip it, I tell you what, it is a thin, it is a very, very conditional relationship you have with God. Because if you have a good week, you're going to come here on Sunday. And you'll come here for the next few weeks. But if, but if you have a bad week, you're like, whoa, God, nah, you didn't do your thing. I'm not coming here. I'm not, I'm not going to teach my kids all this stuff. If you're not going to give me what I deserve. And God and Paul is saying to the church at Rome, that's exactly what you've done. And I need to give you some truth. You are not here for God. Or you are here for God. And God is not simply here to make your life better. What would Westtown say to this? Does our church play potluck Bible? I want this, I want that, I want that verse, I want that chapter, I want that book, but I don't want that chapter, and I don't want that type of God. Because what this tells us is that God is sovereign over all things, including your salvation. You did not choose him. Even though, yes, you've come to know him, what we know is before the foundations of the world. Here's what, here's what we knew. I was going to work out my faith in Jacob. Because if you look at Jacob and Esau, Esau was this dude who was what? He was kind of a emotional. He, he would just give up his right, his blessing, uh, if he felt bad in any way for a, what, a cup of soup. And what do we know about Jacob? The, the, the term Jacob means what? Deceiver. Jacob was a deceiver. And his mama, Rebecca, conspired with him. We're going to deceive Esau together. There was nothing good about Jacob. And there was nothing good about Esau. But God said in his plan, no. Jacob, I have chosen, not because of anything he's done, but because of the plan that I have. And Esau, I've chosen to what? I've allowed him to what? Allow the sinfulness of his heart to take over. I'm not going to restrict the evil in his heart. And the whole tribe of Eden, Edom came out because of him. What do you do with that? I hope that doesn't make you mad. I understand there's going to be a tension here. But I hope what that does to you is say, why in the world would God choose you? And not choose somebody else. Because that is a a legit question. But hopefully that leads you to utter humility. You are no better than anybody else. And what it led Paul is his heart broke. Because he knew there was nothing good inside of him. He was killing Christians. And God on the road to Damascus blinded him and said, you're going to be my man. And Paul is thinking, there ain't nothing good in me. In fact, I wanted to kill anybody who liked you. Why would you choose me? And God said, shut up, right? Be happy for your salvation. And I'm going to use you to change the world. And that's what he asked us to do. Are you willing to give your life over to Isaiah? So Isaiah chapter 55, where God reminds Isaiah and the people of Israel, hey, your thoughts are not God's thoughts. You can't even come close to the perspective that God has. You won't get it. Are you okay with that? If you don't understand, yet you're still called to have faith, are you still willing to deal with it? Because then 22, God says this, or Paul says this, what if God... Let's, let's say, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? 
What if he showed them a lot of patience? Right? But ultimately, Pharaoh was going to be destroyed, and so was Egypt. What if he did that, and he, didn't, he, he gave some patience, but ultimately, they, they were destroyed? What if he did that, and he made the story of Egypt? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, Israel? What if he, in his story, showed Egypt and how thin the story was of a pharaoh who couldn't control anything and riches that didn't lead to anything and utter immorality, which ultimately led to purposelessness? To contrast that with what? His mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And so Paul says, it's not just the Jews now. You know who he's added? He's added the Gentiles to his elect. It's not just the Jewish people in the New Testament. It's the Jews and the Gentiles. Are you kidding me? The whole covenant is expanded. When you understand this, um, when you realize that God has what? He has perfect, go to the next slide. God has perfect purposes that you and I are incapable of seeing. Do you still believe God's good? If you can't know exactly why he's doing what he's doing, can you believe that he is still good? And that's what Paul is challenging the church at Rome to to believe. That God has elected and chosen you. And yeah, that means that he hasn't chosen other people. And he is working out his plan. Now, what that could lead us to is this. That could lead us to say, well, Frank, well, that means that we're the Presbyterian, we're the frozen chosen, right? If God's done everything, why in the world would we share our faith then if he's already going to save him anyway? I know that's a classic question that we get all the time. But here's the point, is that when you read the rest of Scripture, here's what God says. The people that I've chosen, the people that I've elected, I'm going to bring to faith through what? Through the church. Through the preaching of salvation. Of what it means to know him. And the elect will what? They will come forward and receive Christ through the church. So don't ask or don't become a lazy Presbyterian. Don't become a church that never evangelizes. Because I've promised what? That I'm going to use the church. That's the means by which I will save my people. Now, here's what it does to a Presbyterian pastor. It takes the pressure off. I don't have to, like, do all these tricks and start doing, uh, I I should bring my juggling pins up here and do fire and do a double back handspring or something and make you all excited. God, it's so good. You should really, really choose him. And you need to, right? And have all these emotional arguments because I got to persuade you. I got to persuade you to pick Jesus because here's what I know. If God has called you, he will what? He will justify you and he will save you. And so that, the pressure's off. But he also says, but I will use you. If I am going to do the work, but I will use the church to bring about the salvation. Westtown Church, you better not be lazy. No one better describe you as a bunch of frozen chosen. You better you, you better share your faith and evangelize the world. But just so you know, Frank, you can't persuade anybody to choose Christ. I do that. Because Jacob I've called and I've 
made my elect. And Esau, I haven't. And everybody will come to me. In fact, if, there, if you want to think of it as the hundred, if the one goes away, I will leave the 99 and go get the one. Because you know what? I won't lose one. If I've called them before the foundations of the world, they will come to know me. That's how big I am. Are you okay with that size God? Are you all right with, with a God has that much power? Do you still have motivation to share your faith? And if God is that big and that gracious, does that call you to humility and thankfulness? That when we walk, we walk in here and we think, oh my goodness, you know how sinful I am? That God would choose me. That God would choose to work in me is utter and total grace. And when we can understand it that way, a huge God, right, that uses the church to bring about and to call and to make manifest his elect, I think we become a church that loves a big God and evangelizes um, with a bunch of passion and a bunch of zeal. If not, then I think we can become a church that evangelizes all the time but we never know. We really think eternity is in the balance every Sunday when the gospel goes out and we realize, oh my goodness, Jesus died on the cross and I need my next door neighbor to know and I gotta convince them. And what this scripture says is no. God convinces them. He will convince and he won't lose anybody that he has decided before the foundations of the world will know him. But if you can get on board with how big that God is, The pressure is off, and I hope the motivation is still there. Because if no one comes to know the Lord this Sunday at Westtown, or if 50 people come to know the Lord this week at Westtown, here's what we believe. It is God's plan, and God is in control, and he is the one who does everything. Is your God that big? Last thing I'll leave you with. Does this leave you with a little mystery? Maybe a little mystery around the why. And man, I don't get everything. I want to say yes, it does. Of course it does. Are you okay with mystery? Can you trust a God that doesn't give you the whole story? But the rest of the scripture, here's what we know. It says that God is good. And his love endures forever. That's what Paul is trying to bring to his church. That's what Paul is trying, I believe, as we walk through this book. He wants to mature Westtown. He wants us to give us a huge, big, sovereign theology of God. To the extent that you can digest this and begin to work through this, I believe your maturity, your theology gets bigger. And God gets bigger. And you get smaller. And he becomes more the point and you become less the point. And that's exactly Uh, The whole point of the scriptures is the story of redemption is about him. And it's about his glory, not about yours or about mine. About his glory and what he's done through Jesus Christ. So where are you? Does this scare you? Does a sermon, does a chapter like this and a huge God that is in control of your decisions, yes, does that scare you? Or does that humble you? Because think of it humbles you, man. Tell you what, um, 
God takes more reign in our lives. And we worship him, we receive him more, and we understand how big a deal it was for Jesus to die on the cross for us. And, and, and that ultimately is the point of the scriptures. And so as we think about that, and I know that this is a big chunk of meat. This is not a, you know, this is not a, like a, uh, I, went to the, I went to a Columbia restaurant, my friend, yeah, made me pay for lunch at Columbia, and he, and he, he had like a salad, right? It goes down easy. No, this is like a ribeye, right? And you need to take it in smaller bites and digest it. And if you have any questions, please email me or see me after the service or email one of the elders to talk about these hard questions. I know, they're, I know, I know some of them are very difficult, and I want to be sensitive to that. Um, but I think when you add Romans 9 to your theology, right, um, I, I think your theology and your whole understanding of God is, is greater and it's more, more mature. And so as we think about what it means to hear the gospel but also come and receive the gospel, let's pray and ask God for some help uh, this morning. God, we need you. Um, we are Jacob. And we know that if you are um, just, we're Esau. And, and we're the ones that are condemned. But, but you have allowed us to be Jacob because you have opened up our eyes and you have shown us the glory of your son Jesus. And God, I know there are people in this room that have denied themselves and said, you know what, it's all about the Lord. And it's his control. And I wouldn't have done it on my own. So God, as we think about that, that you have called us You have called us your elect, that you have called us, you have justified us, you've sanctified us, and God, one day you will glorify us. As we come to the table, God, may we come knowing that you are a a loving, gracious host. And may we feed on you, and may we grow in grace, God. We thank you for this deep book and, and the ways in which you challenge our minds, God, to love you even more and give you all the sovereignty, God, that is yours in your name. Amen.